If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 18 there this morning. This is a familiar passage. And sometimes familiar passages are hard to read because we don't really engage with them. Uh, Because our eyes are used to what we're going to see, where our ears are prepared for what they're going to hear, and we don't really ever get below the surface. The question I want to ask this morning, uh, this passage is the the story of the wise men, the story of, of Herod receiving the newborn King Jesus. And the question I want to ask is, is this really a familiar story? I mean, we might know in outline what happens, but are we really familiar with what this passage teaches us? As I read it and as we talk about it, I hope that we'll get some new insights this morning. Let me read this. This is Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. With great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region, who were under two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we come to you this morning, and we need to hear a word from you. 
We pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, and that you would give us ears to hear your truth. Teach us what it is that you would have us believe about you and about what you're doing in the world, and show us how you would have us live as your people. We pray all of these things through Christ our King. Amen. For some time after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph seemed to have remained in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral city. He had family going way back there. He originally came from there. And so they made home there in Bethlehem. And our passage tells us in verse 1, it picks right up, and tells us that some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know much about these wise men. They probably weren't kings, uh, contrary to we three kings of Orient are. Uh, We don't know how many there were. Uh, There could have been three. There were three gifts given to Jesus, but there could have been more. Uh, But we do know that these were men who were wise. They might have been royal counselors or philosophers or scholars. They were men whose job it was to study the world and to provide counsel. And they dwelled in the east. And again, we don't know much about them, so we don't know what that means. It could have been just east of Israel. It could have been China. It could be very far, very far away uh, from Israel. And they were watching the stars. You see, these men understood and believed that they could understand world events. They could even predict the future of world events by observing what happened in the stars. They could interpret the world around them. And so one night, as they are watching the stars, a significant event happens. A new star appears. Now, we don't know if this is actually a star or if this is a a comet or something, but a, a new event happened in the heavens, and they realized that this was something significant. This was something that meant a king had been born. And it wasn't just a middling king. It wasn't just uh, someone kind of mediocre and arbitrary. This was a king that they wanted to go see. This is an important king. This is the king of the Jews. And as if their life purpose was suddenly transformed, the wise men packed up all their stuff. They brought precious gifts so that they could go and pay homage to this king. And so they set off from the east to where they thought they would find the king of Israel, the capital of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. We don't know how long this journey took them. It could have been weeks. It could have been months. It possibly even, if very far east, could have taken years. These men, their life was completely transformed by this event. I have a good friend who's a, a pastor, uh, and because he's kind of persnickety, some, some pastors are like that, if, if you haven't noticed, um, whenever they put their nativity scene up, he does it in a special way. Um, their nativity scene, like all nativity scenes, has a baby Jesus, it has Mary and Joseph, and it has some shepherds, and it has some sheep and cows and camels and things like that, maybe an angel. Um, but their nativity scene, like probably all of yours, came with a set of wise men, right? Well, it's just kind of important to notice that the wise men weren't at the stable. Like, they weren't there the night that Jesus was born. They were there later, maybe even years later. Uh, maybe hence that it was as much as two years after the birth of Jesus. So what my friend does to, to capture this, because we want to be accurate in our representations in nativity scenes, 
is he, they always set up their nativity scene, you know, baby Jesus, Mary, Joseph, shepherds, livestock. And then on the other side of the house, he puts the wise men. <laughs> so again, this is, this is a journey for them. But, but it's really amazing to think about because they desired something so much that they were willing to put their life on hold, their lives on hold for weeks or months or possibly even years. I mean, this is a significant event for them. And so they arrive in Jerusalem and they go up to the palace and they knock on the door and they say, hey, where's the new king? We saw his star. We've come to worship him. And the problem is, is that the door to the palace is opened by a guy named Herod. And Herod is the actual king. And as far as Herod knows, he hasn't just had a child. So Herod is concerned by the news of a new king arriving. Some things about Herod that it might be helpful for us to know to set some context. Herod was not a legitimate king. He wasn't a king who was sitting on the throne by virtue of his bloodline. Uh, he wasn't a descendant of King David. Um, he was not actually even ethnically a Jew. Um, Herod was of Arab descent and had converted to Judaism. Herod was sitting on the throne of Israel because he was appointed king of Israel by the Roman Senate. And Herod was paranoid about losing his throne. He couldn't imagine anything worse than losing control of his kingdom. And so one of the ways he tried to secure his throne is he went out to the most prominent family in Israel, a family called the Hasmoneans, and he married their eldest daughter. She was kind of a, um, probably a wealthy, if there's a wealthy socialite in ancient Israel, it's her. Um, she's from a very wealthy family like, like the Washingtons or the, the Kennedys. It's, it's this kind of family. So he goes out and marries, marries her thinking that's going to make people like him as a king. But he's so paranoid that he ends up actually having her killed because he thinks that she's part of a plot to kill him, to take his own life. Herod is a paranoid, evil man with incredible trust issues. And so Herod hears about this new king, and Herod is not happy. Herod sends for the priests and the scribes because he thinks they're going to know what's going on, and he asks them a question, a pointed question, where is the Messiah going to be born? Oh, Actually, he asks, where is the Christ going to be born? Those two are the same thing. Um, Messiah is the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word, and they both mean anointed one. And in the ancient world, there was this expectation, this anticipation that there was going to be a king who came who was going to have a special anointing on him. And what he was going to do is deal decisively with sin and deal decisively with death and brokenness in the world. And he was going to also reestablish God's kingdom on earth. He would overthrow the Roman oppressors of God's people and reestablish the kingdom. And so these Bible scholars, these priests and these scribes answer Herod and they say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote Micah uh, chapter 5 verse 2, a promise about where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem, the city of David. And so figuring out where it's going to be, the, he calls the wise men back and he asks them when the star appears. He wants to know when this guy was born. And so uh, they... They tell him, and he, and, they, and he says, well, okay, good news, it's in Bethlehem, it's not far from here. Uh, and he says, why don't you go, why don't you see him, and why don't you come back and tell me where he's living, because uh, I want to go worship him too. Um, 
Herod does not want to do that, but he's trying to get the wise men uh, to tell him and to help him. So the wise men depart for Bethlehem. Maybe you can imagine the scene. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful scene here. They, they depart from Jerusalem. They leave to go to Bethlehem, and maybe they left around dusk. And they look up, and they see this star that they've been following for weeks and for months, maybe even for years. And it's, it's still leading them. And so they go and they follow the star. And they walk to Bethlehem. And that's about six miles from Jerusalem. It's not far. Uh, it's maybe a two-hour walk, maybe faster if they were on a highly motivated donkey. And the star comes to rest over a house in Bethlehem. And in that moment, they are overjoyed. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Have you ever done that? Have you ever rejoiced exceedingly with great joy? They are overwhelmed that their journey has come to an end and that they're about to meet this king that they've so long desired. A few years ago, Jen and I drove our kids from Asheville to the Niagara region of Ontario, about a 15-hour drive. Uh, and because we're smart, we decided to do that in one day. And it worked okay on the way up because we left about 3 in the morning. And so we got there before, before dinner time. On the way back, we didn't plan as well. And we left Canada after lunch. It was a death march. It was terrible. There were funny smells coming from the back seat. There was weeping. There was gnashing of teeth. Around midnight, we decided we were in Virginia. It's like, let's just stop and find a hotel. We were going to give up. So we pulled into Bristol, Virginia. What's in Bristol? You guys know? Racetrack. It was race night. There wasn't a hotel within 50 miles that had any rooms. So we turned around, got back on the interstate, and we drive, and we're going over the mountain. We're trying to stay awake. I'm sticking my head out the window into the air trying to stay awake. We get off our exit for home at 2 a.m. That felt really good. I was overjoyed when that happened. And that was just a 15-hour drive. These guys had been going for weeks and months and maybe even years. Think about how it felt for them. They are weeping with joy. They are overwhelmed by the fact that the thing they've so long desired, this king they want to meet that made them drop everything and put their lives on hold, is right there. He's in the house they can see. They are overwhelmed. And so they go to the door, and they knock, and they enter the house, and they find Jesus with Mary. And again, we don't know exactly how old Jesus is at this point, but he's probably between 18 months and two years old. What do you think a two-year-old Jesus was doing in that house? I think sometimes it's tempting for us to think that Jesus uh, is kind of the Jesus of our, our kind of holiday postcards, and that what he was doing there was sitting serenely in a chair um, glowing in soft focus with mysterious shining light, maybe pontificating on the finer points of Reformed theology for Mary and Joseph. But that's not the case. Jesus was a normal two-year-old. He was a human child. So maybe he was sitting on Mary's lap. Maybe he was playing. Maybe Mary was changing his diaper. But the wise men 
look at this very normal, very human, unremarkable two-year-old child, and they fall on their faces and worship him. They fall on their faces and worship him. Now, I assume you've seen a two-year-old. I have a two-year-old. And while I could say that occasionally the cuteness of a two-year-old is unbearable, um, I have never once mistaken a two-year-old for majestic. Uh, My two-year-old, I've never been tempted to bow down to her, although she would probably like that with her temperament. Uh, She needs help wiping her nose. She needs help getting dressed. She can't do anything for herself. I think the wise men here are demonstrating for us the character of gospel wisdom. They are able to look at something unremarkable, something that seems weak and something that seems vulnerable, and they see not weakness and vulnerability, but they see the work of God. They see God at work in this small child. And they realize that God's work doesn't always look powerful by the world's standards. In fact, it usually doesn't. And so they worship him, and then they give him presents. They give him gifts, precious gifts. They give him gold, an appropriate gift for a king. Frankincense is a scent that they used in perfume and in medicine. And myrrh is an an ingredient in anointing oils, also in burial oils. You see, they give him these gifts, and these were gifts that were fit for a king. Um, These were precious spices. Um, The anointing oil especially would be what you would put on a king. Kings were anointed. Uh, they were set apart for a special task. These are, these are gifts that show they understood Jesus to be a special ruler. And so since they've worshipped and they've given him gifts, then in a dream they are warned not to go back to Herod. That Herod was not serious about wanting to worship Jesus, but that he actually has sinister intentions. And so they don't go back to Jerusalem. They leave and go home by another way. You see, the wise men embody a faithful response to King Jesus. They recognize God's work in the world. They abandon everything and they journey to find him. He is their heart's desire. And when they find him, they rejoice over him and they worship him and they give him all they have a faithful response. But the story doesn't end there. You see, as the wise men depart, Joseph is also warned in a dream that they need to depart. They need to leave Bethlehem because King Herod is coming to try to kill Jesus. And so by the dark of the night, they leave and they steal away and they escape and they go to Egypt, just like Israel did in ancient times. And when Herod, as paranoid as he is, recognizes and realizes that the wise men have have tricked him, he flies into a murderous rage. He feels like he's losing control of his kingdom because in his mind, a very real threat to his rule is present. So he does the only thing he can think to do. He has to kill this child at all costs. And so Herod sends soldiers to Bethlehem, and he kills all of the boys who are two years old or younger in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area. What unbelievable grief came to Bethlehem that night. What unspeakable evil. And I know that for many of you, this is a grief you've felt, a grief you've understood Uh, The pain of losing a child is like nothing else. And friends, while this passage is not the last word on on our grief and the last word on on pain, uh, the pain of loss of losing a child, 
There is something beautiful about the way that Matthew describes um, the weeping. And he says in verse 18, or verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Friends, this is not a God who is indifferent to your grief. A God who is telling you to just get over it and move on. This is a God who recognizes that in our pain, there are sometimes things that are inconsolable. And he's okay with that. He promises to be with us in that pain. You see, Herod's paranoia, his fear of losing control, his desire to fix everything and maintain his own kingdom and the status quo, to hold on to things that weren't his to hold on to to begin with, all of those things led him to seek to kill Jesus. And as far as we know, Herod seems to think that he's succeeded because he stops trying after this horrible, horrible event. You see, this passage sets before us two ways to receive Jesus, a wise way and an evil way, and they're sitting right next to one another. The wise men see God at work in the world. They see the star rise. They see God in the face of this this king, and their life purpose changes. They journey, they give up their lives, they put them on hold, and they journey, and they journey, and they seek to find this king, and they find him, and they rejoice over him, and they bow down to him. Herod does almost the complete opposite. He hears of this king, and in his paranoia, he feels threatened by Jesus, and he's terrified to lose control, and so he wants to keep his kingdom, and so instead of his life being reoriented now to the truth of God's Messiah arriving, Herod seeks to kill Jesus. And I would suggest this. While it might seem like there are many ways to receive Jesus or to respond to Jesus, I think in the end, all of them boil down to one of these two. Either we recognize what Jesus is and we abandon everything to come worship at his feet, or we seek to build our own kingdom. And if we seek to build our own kingdom and maintain control of our lives and fix everything on our own, what that ultimately leads us to want to do is to kill Jesus. The way of the wise men versus the way of Herod. And the point this morning for us is not that we need to try really hard and do better to be more and more like the wise men. We just need to start making wise choices. That's not the point. The point is also not to try really hard to avoid being like Herod. That's also not the point. I think that the point of this passage is actually deeper than that. And it's more pointed than that. And to be really, really frank, it's more painful than that. Because I think that the point of our passage is that each of us has Herod in our hearts. Each one of us has a hint of Herod in everything that we do. In other words, when we read this passage... We are Herod. I know that's an offensive idea. You see, the the core of Herod's evil is control. That's what Herod wants. He wants to build his kingdom, to fix his problems, to maintain the status quo, to go his own way, to do his own thing. He wants to be the captain of his fate, the master of his destiny, and he wants no outside input. If we're real honest... Don't we live that way 
in our hearts sometimes? Isn't that where our hearts are? Deep within us, don't we want to be in control of our lives? Aren't we terrified of losing control? Aren't we terrified to think that God is ultimately the one who dictates what is right and what is wrong? That he's the one who dictates the terms of our, of our lives? And even when we finally come to maybe even embrace Christ in faith and acknowledge God to be our king, there are still enclaves and places in our hearts where we cling to control, where we cling to our own kingdoms, places we just don't want God to touch or to deal with. And because that's the case, we don't want any input from him in certain areas. You see, Herod's problem in this passage is not the fact that he murdered the boys of Bethlehem. That was an unspeakable evil. But Herod's problem was not that. That was not his chief sin in this passage. The sin of Herod is his obsession with control. And that same obsession with control nests itself deep in our own hearts. And it manifests itself in any number of ways. You see, the tendency to be like Herod might manifest itself as cynicism. Maybe you just try to be cool and detached and act like nothing phases you, and you do that as a way to shield yourself from the world. You know, if Herod, Herod's sin is paranoia and, and control, I had a, another pastor friend tell me that we kind of think cynicism is kind of a cool way to be. Uh, he says, but cynicism is really just paranoia with an iPod. Isn't that great? Cynicism might be a way that we are manifesting this Herodian desire to stay in control of our hearts, of our lives. It could be compulsive shopping or compulsive overeating or watching TV to the point of distraction, all the things which you do to distract yourself, to numb yourself from the pain that you're just trying to do to maintain control over the things happening in your heart it could manifest itself in unhealthy daydreaming and impure thoughts even hasty or uncritical nationalism. It might manifest itself in your desire to try to fix other people or to blame other people for your problems. Maybe uh, you uh, obsessively clean your house and that's just the way you're trying to keep it under control. Maybe having kids completely overwhelms you and the way you're trying to maintain this level of control, this, this sinful level of control, is by just suffocating your children with parenting. But you see, just like Herod, none of those are our true problem. You know, suffocating parenting or overeating or watching TV, those are, those are sins, but those are not the chief problem. The chief problem is that in our hearts, we want to maintain control. And because we want to maintain control, like Herod, we are ultimately willing to kill to do it. You see, King Jesus lays claim to our entire lives, every part of you, and the places that you don't want his input, the places you don't want him to go, those are the places where you are going to be tempted to want to kill Jesus. You see, Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his kingdom, and so he sought to kill Jesus, the baby king. Maybe for us, it's not an active hostility like that. Maybe it's just a callous indifference that we don't want Jesus to have an opinion on this matter, so he is shut out of that part of your lives. Friends, in the end, that is no different than seeking to kill him. You want no part of him in one area of your life. You see, Herod sent soldiers to kill this new king when he thought this king was most vulnerable. 
as a baby. And Herod thought that he understood strength and understood weakness and thought that by a show of strength he could defeat this king at his most vulnerable, at his most weak. And that's really the way that the world understands strength and weakness. Uh, it's force, what is strong and what is weak. But Jesus subverts the way of the world. You see, for Jesus, his vulnerability is not a weakness. It is his greatest strength. And Jesus was not just vulnerable as a baby. His entire life was a life of vulnerability. He was born as a baby, yes. And think about that. The king of the universe became a baby. He was vulnerable there. But he was vulnerable not only there, but also in submitting himself to parents, in submitting himself to human authorities, in submitting himself to God's law, which he wrote, right? He submitted himself to the law that he gave to his people. He subjects himself to worldly authorities. He submits himself to an unjust trial. He lays down his life for an unjust execution. The author and the creator of life submits himself to death. It's astounding. His vulnerability began the moment he was born, and it didn't end until the moment he died on the cross. You see, here's where Herod missed the point. Herod thought that he could secure his kingdom if he killed Jesus. And the fact of the matter is you can't do that. You can never secure your kingdom by killing Jesus. You can never maintain control or fix your own problems by killing Jesus. All of the strength in the world will not snuff out King Jesus, even in his vulnerability. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that this baby was born to die. And 30 years after his parents fled to Egypt, Jesus returned to face death. And his life was not taken from him by the strength of the world. He laid it down. And in his final act of vulnerability, Christ died on a cross. And in death, Jesus doesn't secure your kingdom. He undoes it. In death, Jesus overthrows your kingdom and establishes his own. You see, on the cross, Jesus dealt with the Herod in your hearts. But he doesn't just leave you there. He doesn't just fix you and then tell you to try harder not to do it again. He actually does something much more beautiful. Jesus promises and begins to make us wise. You see, if Herod represents where our hearts naturally are apart from the gospel, the wise men represent for us what we become in Christ. And when our kingdoms are overthrown, when we're freed from the tyranny of having to maintain control over our own lives and, and fix all of our own problems, when we're freed from that, our motivations, our hearts, and our desires completely change. And in the place of a need to maintain control is the ability to follow a king, a desire to follow a king. In the place of a need to maintain control and build a kingdom comes a recognition that you actually live in a far-off country, that your king is far, but he's worth traveling to. And there are miles and miles and weeks and months and years of journey ahead. In the place of a paranoid need to show strength and fix problems 
we actually get the ability to enter into the vulnerability that Jesus himself showed, to embrace that vulnerability. Uh, I met with Dave right after I started here nine months ago, and we were talking about vulnerability and the gospel. And he said, you know, Todd, at the end of the day, we have two things to offer people, a naked Jew on a cross and ourselves. You see, friends, when we understand this kind of vulnerability, we begin to offer ourselves to others like Jesus offered himself for us. And just like the wise men in this story rejoiced when they found this king, the promise is that joy will be ours forever because one day our journey will end and we will sit at the feet of our king who has conquered us and who has freed us. And we will worship him in joy and in peace forever and ever. And friends, that's the good news. That's the gospel. Would you pray with me?